Welcome to Brain Ignition Radio. Here I share with you all of the knowledge and resources I've gained as it relates to nutrition, exercise, and brain health. By sharing these interesting case studies, in-depth discussions, and research, I hope that we can learn together and improve our current health and the health of future generations. I'm your host, Chet Binning, and I thank you for tuning in. What's up, guys? Thanks again for tuning in. This is going to be part two of our essentials for fat loss. So if you missed part one, definitely I would suggest go back and listen to that one before you listen to this one. There's some prerequisite information in there. Some things that you should know before listening to this one. But also when we talk about hierarchy of importance. So what is most important for fat loss and leaning out and body composition? Everything I talk about in part one is more important than what we will talk about today, but today is still important and probably has a lot of information that people haven't heard before. So what are we going to talk about? We're going to focus on blood sugar and insulin sensitivity today. If you're not familiar with that, I'm going to explain to you what that means. We'll talk about actionable tools to optimize your insulin sensitivity and metabolic health. So these will be things like exercise timing. We'll talk about glucose disposal agents, things that help you actually quite literally dispose glucose more optimally throughout your body. We'll talk about the glycemic index of foods. We'll talk about fructose and where that factors in, cinnamon, fish oil, and a couple more things. So we have lots to cover today. So let's start with exactly how blood sugar and insulin work, because this is prerequisite for what we're going to talk about later today. So this will help us all understand this a lot better, but also it's going to also give you the tools to understand marketing and other things that you see on social media and stores and so on much better, which I think is going to be useful for everyone because there is, as we've said before, so much stuff out there, especially in this exact field, fat loss, weight loss, and so on. So we all have, blood sugar, AKA blood glucose in our bloodstream at all times. So your body wants to maintain a stable level the majority of the time. That sugar or glucose is there so that your body can draw on it for energy essentially. And this includes your brain and muscles and, and really every cell, nearly every cell of your body. So that's why that's there, but there's lots of things that will impact the level of that. So here's a couple examples. So food, for instance, will increase your blood sugar. So that's totally normal. You eat that food, it's broken down and then released into your bloodstream as sugar so that the rest of your body and the cells can absorb that for energy, essentially. Different foods will impact your blood sugar differently. So typically higher carbohydrate, higher sugar foods will elevate your blood sugar more than say protein or fats actually. There's some other key events that have a strong impact on blood sugar. These are important to consider too. So exercise will increase your blood sugar. So that's good, right? Because what's happening is your body's releasing stored energy so that your muscles can use that to fuel that exercise. Stress will actually increase blood sugar too, for really much of the same reason as exercise to provide additional energy to cope with that stressor. So these both are of course essential responses, but now we can start to see how these could also be problematic, right? How 
for instance, too much exercise could be a bad thing, or obviously too much stress would become a bad thing. And this is going to make more sense later on when we talk about the problems of constantly having high blood sugar and high insulin. So these are some of the things we're going to get into. So you can actually measure this in yourself if you like uh, pretty easily. I've, I've messed around with this many times. It's pretty interesting. Maybe not to you, but it is to me, but you can learn a ton from doing this. So for instance, you can get just a basic uh, kind of finger pricker, if you will, at your local drugstore. And you would actually, I think you can get these for free um, in Canada at the drugstore anyways. But what you have to pay for is the strips. So you have to pay for the glucose strips, which would measure your blood glucose or blood sugar and the ketone strips, which would measure your blood ketones. We're not going to get into ketones a ton today, but those strips are, I think about 10 times more expensive per strip than glucose. They're like 10 bucks a strip, but I have experimented with them still business expense. And uh, glucose is about a dollar a strip, I think. So that's pretty cheap fun to assess your blood sugar. So if you're doing this, guys, some things you can do is morning fasting. Try and do that after about 12 hours without calories or food. That's a really good metric, actually, for overall health and well-being. If you have a low morning fasted blood sugar that's a really good thing and in fact one of the indicators of metabolic impairment or even pre-diabetes is higher am fasting blood sugar you could also test if you really want to geek out on this how your body responds to meals and different types of foods even so for instance you might eat an apple and then have hardly any spike in blood sugar, whereas your buddy Joe might have that exact same apple and have an enormous spike. So this is just some of the individual variants that can exist. As one last example to kind of pave the way, if you will, for what we're going to talk about later, your post-meal rise in blood sugar, this is called postprandial blood sugar response, is also a really important marker for health. And these are all what we're talking about now. These are all really important markers, of course, for body composition and fat loss. And we're going to get into that part. But back to the meal example. So you want your postprandial rise in blood sugar to be lower. You don't want it to be high all the time. You also want it to come back down to baseline, excuse me, fast. So let's recap that. Post meal response of blood sugar. Optimally, you want that to rise, but not too high. And you want it to fall down relatively quickly. So within about one, maybe two hours, depending on the meal, if you have the opposite or maybe not so good, because this happens along a continuum, right? So if you get a really high spike in blood sugar and it stays high for long periods of time, that's not a good thing. And you want to work on that. So you can refer to this as area under the curve. Think of this like a mountain, right? You want your mountain or your area under the curve to be more of like a hill. So you want a really small mountain, so a low peak, and you want it to be kind of flat. You don't want something like an Everest, which is really tall and just keeps going on and on and on. So I hope this helps you guys kind of visualize this. And we're going to talk about things that can really optimize this response for everyone if you're struggling with it or if it's already good. So that's the cool thing is that lifestyle and diet has a huge impact on this response. This is why I cringe when I see things out there 
that downplay the effects of exercise, lifestyle, and diet on things like blood sugar and metabolic health. And I think we've all seen lots of that in the past year or so, right? Is the downplaying of the effects or the benefits of exercise and diet on metabolic health, or at least I've seen enough, or sorry, I should say, I haven't seen any, and that's the problem. Hope that made sense. Cool. So let's just finish kind of summarizing how this response of blood sugar and insulin works within your body, each and every single one of us. So you have your blood sugar, right? Now we also have to talk about our buddy insulin. So insulin is a hormone. Hormone means that usually, typically, hormones are released from one location, travel through the bloodstream to act on receptors elsewhere in the body. So they travel long distances. They also often carry different things through our blood to a target location. So you can think about even, you know, like estrogen or testosterone. These are other examples. They're released from certain locations of the body and travel elsewhere to have an effect. Thyroid hormone would be another really good example, but we don't have to get into these. So insulin, it is released in high amounts in response to rising blood sugar, typically. So imagine that you consume a meal and you're going to release insulin. The role of insulin is to basically really kind of just grab that sugar in your blood and then transport it to cells throughout your body so that it can be used as energy. So when we talk about that mountain or that hill or that area under the curve, one of the responses of the body that helps to lower that rise is insulin. So you want this to be working well, right? Now, the point of all of this, guys, is that this is really at the foundation of not only long-term health, but also body composition and fat loss in general, because this process, these mechanisms we're talking about, blood sugar, insulin, really strongly impact things like cravings, energy levels, and ultimately how you store energy. So whether you're storing things as fat or muscle, excess energy, and so on. So just a couple more things that we should know before we get into some actionable tools here is insulin is not automatic. So what I mean by that is, as I said, insulin kind of grabs that energy, if you will, and then tries to transport it into cells. But as it's doing that, or I should say before it does that, it has to bind to an insulin receptor to actually allow that energy to be released into the cell. So this is kind of the simplified version of this. So just think of this as really like a locking key, right? So imagine insulin is the key and it's going into that lock, you open it and then it's going to store energy. So the point of this is that not all locks and keys work the same. Some work really well. They're easy to put in very efficient, which is what we would call sensitive. We would call this insulin sensitivity versus a lock and key that really doesn't work very well. You may need to try several different keys before you can open that lock. This would be a lack of insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance. And maybe you've heard of this before. I know if you've kind of listened or followed my stuff for a bit, you've definitely heard me say this, but maybe you don't know what the hell I'm talking about. So this is it. So this is how you can kind of visualize this. If, if this is new to you, think of it as locks and keys. And 
we want to be sensitive. So we want fewer, fewer keys that fit really well into those locks. Now, last thing is that this does happen along a continuum. So it's not that someone is insulin sensitive and then boom, all of a sudden they're just insulin resistance and resistant, sorry, and this doesn't work and they have diabetes and everything. It's along a continuum. So we can be, you know, really sensitive. We can be kind of halfway sensitive and so on and so forth. Now, certainly you can like assess these with some lab work and we're going to get into that, uh, probably one or two weeks. Um, and that's going to help you understand this too, but this is the key here is that we want to be insulin sensitive because this is going to be really important for everything we mentioned earlier body composition, fat loss, having more energy and overall health. To give you guys an example, if we have high blood sugar for long periods of time, this has actually been shown to increase our risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So what these studies have looked at is something called HbA1c. This is a marker of our average blood sugar for about two to three months. So it's technically better than just looking at your morning fasted blood sugar just one single time because many things can affect that, right? How long you fasted, how well your sleep was the previous night, your stress level, did you exercise before or after? So this HbA1c is a much better indicator because it's a, it's a, it's a long-term snapshot. So it gives us an idea of what our habits are. And so it's been shown in the research that having a high level of this for long periods of time, so 10 years plus, actually increases risk of dementia. So this is like a, a, a perfect example, guys, of how diet really does have an enormous impact on brain function and brain health. So what can we do to really optimize this response? What can we do to optimize our metabolic health? Well, the first thing we should talk about is how protein, fat, and carbohydrates affect this response. So we've kind of hinted at this already, but we need to elaborate on this a little bit more. So like I said, things like carbohydrates, and sugar, sometimes there's some overlap there, those typically increase blood sugar the highest. And so this can, for some people, not everyone, but some people cause some issues, right? Because if you're constantly jacking up that blood sugar and you are lacking insulin sensitivity, this is going to create some problems, right? Because your body's going to be trying to store that sugar, but it's just not responding to that signal. And then your levels are going to keep rising, rising, rising. And this is where we get into problems. This is what leads to that pre-diabetes and diabetes and so forth. But as I said, it's a continuum. And so we can be not quite there yet, you know, not quite to that pre-diabetic state, but still want to improve this or, or be able to improve this. So as I said, carbohydrates, that's the kind of highest response, if you will, or the highest postprandial rise in blood sugar. Now, interesting, interestingly, we can actually lower that postprandial rise in blood sugar. So make that mountain or that peak smaller. Remember, that's a goal. That's what we want to do. If we add protein to a meal. So imagine that you have say a cookie on its own, that's going to really drive up your blood sugar. If you pair some protein with that, so let's say you have something like an egg with that, that's going to actually lower that response. Now, obviously calories matter here, right? So let's use another example that accounts for calories. Let's say you're having a 400 calorie meal that's really high in carbohydrates and low in protein. So maybe you're just having like a big bowl of white rice, or maybe you're actually having a couple donuts. 
Now compare that to someone who's also having 400 calories, but maybe they're having half that white rice or half those amount of donuts with some chicken or something. Strange combo. Don't know if I've ever had that chicken donut combo before, but hey, so 400 calories each. Well, those are going to have completely different effects on our response of blood sugar and ultimately insulin. And that is going to have a different effect on our long-term blood sugar and insulin sensitivity. So you can see now, guys, how your daily dietary habits not only have an immediate effect, but also over time have a long-term effect. So you really want to kind of optimize as many of your meals as possible. So that's the first thing is the protein, carbohydrates. And then fat is in terms of blood sugar and insulin response. It's also pretty low to moderate. So it's going to fit in there somewhere with protein. So its response actually is a lot lower than the response to carbohydrates. Now, obviously, this isn't the be all end all, as in blood sugar and insulin is not the only thing that matters. Of course, things like triglycerides and so on are important as well, cholesterol. But for the sake of this conversation, let's focus on this. Let's just worry about this for now. We'll worry about the others later on. So that's the first key takeaway, guys, is that different macronutrients have different effects on our metabolic health, regardless of calories, regardless of calories. Calories, remember, is certainly, as we talked about last time, the most important thing for fat loss, but it's not the only thing. And it's crazy to me that people still say that all that matters is calories, calories in versus calories out. So these people that say, essentially, that eating 400 calories from Twinkies is the same as eating 400 calories from, you know, whatever, chicken and rice. So just be mindful of that. Look out for this on the socials, magazines, etc. Now, there's a couple more really important points that we should highlight for protein because I want you guys to be able to apply this. So I'm about to tell you why adequate protein intake as we discussed last time is so important if you want to lose fat and lean out so another example protein actually has the highest thermogenic effect so this means that when you digest protein it actually burns the most calories compared to other macronutrients it's most satiating this is obviously super important it has the strongest appetite suppressing effect. So there's been tons of studies looking at this. They'll look at the exact signals that travel from gut to brain and specifically to the hypothalamus in your brain, often this area called the arcuate nucleus of your hypothalamus. But they've looked at several of these specific pathways or signals, if you will, and they find that the most satiating effect comes from protein. So this is really interesting, but I think anecdotally, we've probably all experienced this. If you sit down and have something like a steak or whatever else high in protein, you can only eat so much, right? You have, you know, you have something like a big steak, you are so stuffed afterwards. And I mean, at least I feel like I don't even want to think about eating anything else after that. Compare that to having equal calories from like cake or ice cream or donuts or something like that. As we know, we can just keep plowing through the food, right? And it has to do with these satiating effects. Now it also has to do with the rewarding effects of, of sugar, but that's a little separate. But obviously, if you want to control hunger, control cravings, well then again, you better make sure you're having adequate protein. It has the strongest stabilizing effect on blood sugar. So we talked about this as well, right? So protein's gonna give you that kind of that, that hill. 
It's going to give you that if you're from London, an area, you'll understand this analogy. It's going to give you more of like a bowler mountain effect versus like uh, uh, maybe Banff or something like that, a, a bigger mountain. So this is good. This is what you want. Stable blood sugar, as we talked about, good for overall health. But also when you have stable blood sugar, you're going to avoid the symptoms of going through high and low blood sugar, which are so common nowadays. Talking about things like anxiety, stress, fatigue, head bobbing at your desk, feeling just grumpy and miserable. So these are often just symptoms of fluctuating blood sugar. And this is why it's so crazy that we now commonly recommend these high carb, high sugar breakfasts, things like cereal, donuts, muffins. I mean, some of them are like, if you think about them, it's, I mean, they're laughable that we actually say these are breakfasts, like toasted strudels or pop tarts. Like, believe me, I've been there. I've, I've kind of, I mean, I kind of grew up on these to be honest, like through my teenage years, but it's crazy that we, as a society, push these as a healthy breakfast. You're setting yourself up for basically that blood sugar roller coaster for the day. So protein, each meal important, but especially at breakfast, as we've already talked about lots. And then the final key thing here with protein, why you want to ensure you have adequate amounts for fat loss and body composition. Well, of course, as we've already talked about, because the protein is going to be critical for maintaining or building lean muscle and lean muscle. What is that important for guys? Well, it is critical for maintaining a high metabolic rate. So for burning through energy and calories. One more kind of final point here on protein and muscle. I, this should kind of also connect more dots for you guys. So this is one of the reasons why muscle is really beneficial for metabolic health is because it enhances our insulin sensitivity. So muscle supports this. It supports insulin sensitivity, which means that when you consume that food, whether it be carbohydrates and sugar or whatever, your body's going to be more likely to transport that energy into our muscle. If that muscle's not there, well, then it's going to basically, I mean, what's happening is it's going to take longer for your body to get that energy out of our bloodstream and store it as energy, but also you're going to be more likely to store it as fat. So this is, this is really simply kind of how this works. Next up would be the glycemic index of foods. So this is a, it's a number value that tells us the typical response of our blood sugar to that food. So for example, something like say a donut, a muffin, one of these things we already talked about, these would be really high on the glycemic index. So for short, we would say this is a high GI food in comparison to a lower glycemic index food, which has a low effect or response of our blood sugar. Um, something like veggies or maybe some raw nuts or seeds or some berries. So this one's pretty straightforward, guys. You want to, especially if you're someone who is not as active and you do have some extra fat to lose, especially around the midsection, you really want to prioritize these low glycemic index foods at all times, but especially earlier in the day because... You can just imagine this as the lower glycemic index foods are, are going to kind of just leak blood sugar into our bloodstream as opposed to kind of like really opening the floodgates with those high GI foods. And I think we, we probably all appreciate now why that's beneficial after our rant or my rant in the beginning, but this is going to keep that area under the curve, that mountain, whatever you want to think of it as, 
smaller and lower and more stable versus those high GI, which is really going to spike things and oftentimes consequently lead to that crash later on with all those nasty symptoms and side effects that we talked about, not only initially, but also long-term. So a couple more examples, like I said, most vegetables are lower GI, so those would be good at all meals, any meals. Raw nuts and seeds are another great option. This is why I often suggest these at breakfast or even lunch. Berries are also low GI in comparison to some other fruits, which are a lot higher on the glycemic index. So things like bananas, mangoes, sometimes pineapple. Most healthy fats and proteins are, of course, lower on the glycemic index. And then fermented and pickled foods. So things like sauerkraut, pickles, kimchi, and so on. These would be lower GI as well. So that's why these are also awesome at breakfast and lunch and so on. So hopefully you are noticing a little bit of a trend here. Basically, you want to keep things low GI, especially for the first part of the day, and then save those higher GI foods for usually dinner time. Now, obviously there's some individual differences here. So athletes, people who are extremely active, have more muscle, are metabolically healthy and so on, they can get away with having more higher glycemic index foods. So this is why you'll see people on films or social media or whatever, showing them eating just crap food, unfortunately, is what we often see, but they still look super lean. I, I don't really like this or agree with this. Um, when people, I mean, kind of what they're doing is may, maybe they're not, but I think many are kind of like showing off, right? They're showing off like, Hey, I can eat this crap and, you know, still have a six pack. Um, I don't like this, but you know, to each their own. Cause I do think that there's some things going on on the inside that still don't make this the best option, even for those athletes. However, that being said, obviously, if you're very active, you can kind of get away a little bit more with eating some of these foods. But the point is here, guys, for the majority of people and even athletes at certain times, you want to really prioritize these low GI foods. So this is, this is another key takeaway, but also such an easy thing that I think everyone can do. Now, speaking of athletes, this kind of brings up a, a key exception to the rule or another exception, one that I didn't just mention. So there is a time where you would actually want high GI foods. And that time for most athletes, again, not all individual differences would be actually post-workout. So post-workout, especially a really hard training session, especially strength training session, you actually want a high glycemic source. So you actually want something like whole foods are, are still always better than the, the junk. So you actually want something like some of my favorite sources would be like pineapple, bananas, sometimes a good carb powder. Uh, I love dates. Um, maple syrup is another good one, white rice. But anyways, you actually want that high glycemic response at that time for a couple of reasons, because one, it will actually trigger that high insulin release, which post-workout can be a good thing because insulin does, doesn't just transport sugar, but it also transports or helps to transport amino acids, for instance, and even some minerals. And so imagine that post-workout, do I want sugar, amino acids, and minerals to be transported into my cells, especially my muscle cells? Well, you damn well bet I do. And so that would be a good time for a lot of people to consume that higher GI food. So I hope this too also kind of explains something that I know a lot of people see. Everyone sees this, right? And this explains why. This explains why people do this and why 
especially athletes can do this. And as I just explained why it's sometimes um, recommended. I think I maybe already said that I repeated myself. Um, recording this later in the day, it's about 5.30 p.m. And as you can tell, sometimes at this time of day, uh, well, it's a little bit harder to keep track of things. The brain's getting a little mushy this time of day. So next up, another key here, guys, would be fibrous foods or fiber. We've kind of already covered this. Um, we don't need to expand on this too, too much because it's the same idea really as glycemic index. It's different, but similar. So fiber, what it does is, as we know, slows the digestion, which means it slows or delays or lessens that response of blood sugar. And so this is another thing that can support that insulin sensitivity and metabolic health. So implementing fiber rich foods, things like really everything we've already discussed, veggies, nuts and seeds, berries, sometimes apples and so on. Implementing these can be a good thing. But again, exception, well, post-workout. Post-workout, you do not want fiber because you want things that absorb rapidly. Fiber delays everything. So that's not what we want at that time. Fructose. This is, I think, an often overlooked thing. So we talk or we have talked a lot about in this episode about blood glucose, right? Or glucose. So glucose is a type of sugar. So you'll get glucose from all these carbohydrate sources we've talked about from sugar, from rice, from breads, even foods that don't contain a lot of sugar or any sugar, something like white rice is going to eventually be broken down into glucose. But glucose differs from fructose. Fructose is what we would find in fruits, right? But the amount Benson has entered, the amount of fructose and glucose in fruits also varies. So as an example, some, some fruits are low in fructose, and then have the remainder glucose and some other sugars. Other fruits are high fructose fruits. So some of your high fructose fruit examples would be um, like your yellow bananas, some apples, mangoes again. And then lower fructose would be things like berries or avocado or grapefruit. So why does this matter? Well, fructose is metabolize completely different than glucose is. So fructose actually does not require insulin and is instead completely metabolized by the liver. So this is different than glucose, which we get from some of these other carbohydrate sources, because that does have to go through our full digestive system. Fructose bypasses this. This can be kind of a good or bad thing, really depending on the individual. So who does this matter most for? Well, for people who maybe you are, you're not very active, you have some weight to lose, maybe you have some metabolic issues or you're wondering if you do, you would be best to limit your fructose consumption. In other words, limit your fruit consumption actually, but it's not just fruit. There's lots of other sources of, of fructose out there. Look on your food labels. High fructose corn syrup would be the most common example. Some drinks, some sodas. These are other examples. But the reason that these people would want to really limit this is because you can get to a stage where your liver just can't keep up with the fructose metabolism and then it's going to be really easily converted to fat, stored as fat, and it's also going to impair your ability to store glucose too. One sec, guys.
So that's probably another thing that's shocking to a lot of people, I think, right? Is to actually limit or maybe even avoid fruit consumption. But indeed, it is true. And I think this is probably one of the most common mistakes that people unknowingly make is thinking that more and more and more and more fruit is a good thing when in fact you can absolutely overdo it with this. Fruit is loaded with sugar. Some of them have a ton of fructose and because of some of these different mechanisms we've talked about and just that fact right there, the sugar content, the fructose content, you can absolutely overdo it with this and really not only make it difficult to lose fat, but even start to bulk up. Now there is like a really interesting kind of adaptive rationale for this. Like you might be wondering why do we have this completely separate metabolic pathway? Again, hopefully you guys can't hear that rummaging in the background. Benson likes to uh, basically dig into the couch and just toss all the couch cushions everywhere. There we go. So why might we have this completely separate pathway? Kind of, kind of strange, isn't it? Well, if you think about it, Thousands of years ago when food was not readily available at all times of the year, we would have had limited access to not only carbohydrates and sugar in general, but specifically fruits and fructose. We would only have access to those in the springtime. What is also probably happening in the springtime during these times? Well, likely after a winter of food shortage, maybe even near starvation, your body's going to be just completely prepared and even looking for energy and is going to want to rapidly store that as we have more access. And that's exactly what would have gone on, right? We come out of winter, we enter spring, and we start to have more access to fruits. And so our body evolved this completely separate pathway, basically to very rapidly store large amounts of energy. So that's exactly what fructose does, right? Come out of the winter, have access to all this fruit, start consuming copious amounts of it. And all of a sudden we have stocked an abundance of energy again to help us get through that summer. So when you think about it this way, it's, it's maybe not too bizarre or absurd, I don't think. But nowadays, obviously, we don't have this. We have access to all foods at all times of years. And so it's kind of like modern living has kind of in an unfortunate way exposed a specific adaptive mechanism in the body. So to summarize that, guys, take a look at your fructose intake, your fruit intake, your high fructose corn syrup. And if you're kind of scratching your head wondering what's going on, <laughs> Jesus, Benson. <laughs> Crazy guy. He's a dog, by the way, for those of you who maybe don't know. I don't even remember what I was talking about now. So let's move ahead to... I think we covered that in some good detail anyways. Let's move ahead now to the, the last thing we're going to talk about. Um, last kind of two things, I suppose. So GDAs, the, this stands for glucose disposal agents. These are things that actually help your body to more efficiently store sugar and store energy in general. First example, apple cider vinegar actually so yes there is definitely some merit to this it's not just a like a snake oil or whatever so tons of research showing that apple cider vinegar and even just vinegar in general reduces the postprandial rise in glucose and insulin in response to a high carbohydrate meal that's cool right that's really effective that's a, a good tool that a lot of people can benefit from so it turns out that there's a acetic acid, it's called, as one of the major components in apple cider vinegar, which gives it that vinegar sour taste or pungent smell. 
which is part of the reason for this response. But there's a lot of other potential reasons. The exact mechanism is actually not yet determined, but we don't necessarily care about that, right? In this scenario, it's a natural source, and we know that it has this benefit in the end. And so this is a really great tool for a lot of people. So you wanna have about one to two tablespoons before a meal to get this benefit to blood sugar and insulin. Tastes like crap, absolutely. Um, can burn. So keep that in mind, be prepared. Um, I've had people tell me that it helps to mix it kind of like a one-to-one -one with like a plain carbonated water. A little bit of water can help too, um, or just shoot it back. I usually just shoot it back. It's, it's not the most pleasant thing, but um, I'm, I think most people have probably shot things that are a lot worse. Cinnamon, another really good, really cool example with a ton of supporting data. This too supports postprandial response of blood sugar and insulin. Specifically, one of the things that cinnamon can do is it actually optimizes what's called GLUT4 transporters. So that's capital G-L-U-T-4. So this is a specific type of transporter that is critical for actually getting sugar and energy into the cell. So imagine this GLUT4 transporter on the outside of one of your muscle cells. So you can kind of just picture this, right? Imagine your muscle, maybe you have a nice big bicep you wanna think about. Think about all these cells in there. And now think about one of those individual cells. You have these GLUT4 transporters. Usually these kind of hang out in the middle of that cell, but sometimes they'll move to the outside to basically kind of really like suck up or absorb energy and sugar and get it into that cell or that muscle cell. So this is a really good thing actually. So if you have more of these GLUT4 transporters, this actually improves your sensitivity to glucose and sugar and improves your insulin sensitivity. This is another really cool kind of precise mechanism of how and why muscle and exercise in general supports these metabolic responses because it's been shown in the data that even one single high intense workout triggers these GLUT4 transporters to move to the outside of the cell. And once to the outside, that's where they optimize blood sugar sensitivity and insulin sensitivity. And so long periods of time, if you are consistently being active, if you have lean muscle, you're going to have lots of these GLUT4 transporters, and this is going to optimize your metabolic health. Pretty wicked. And it turns out that cinnamon actually has a similar effect. So it, it, cinnamon, just like exercise, of course, there's some differences there, but can also move these transporters to the outside and so that it can basically suck up that sugar. So another really good thing to, to rapidly lower blood sugar and improve that sensitivity, which is what we want. There's some other potential uh, mechanisms here as well, but this is one of the major ones. So try having about one to two tablespoons of cinnamon with a meal. One of my favorite ways is to have it in some plain sprouted oats that I mix with usually some protein powder, sometimes nuts and seeds, sometimes pumpkin, sometimes fruit, depends how many calories I'm looking for. But that's a pretty good combination right there, right? If you're someone who still likes to have a little bit of carbohydrates at breakfast, maybe for whatever reason, you just don't want to part with that. Well, switch from your quick oats that are loaded with sugar, go to plain oats. That's going to lower your sugar intake, sweeten it with protein powder. Protein is going to give us all those benefits we talked about. Add some cinnamon for some more great flavoring. That's going to give it some good flavor. It's going to give you some of these wicked 
metabolic benefits we just discussed, things like berries, which we've also discussed earlier, pumpkin, good source of fiber. Boom, there you go. Pretty easy, really easy snack that you can have. Works well at breakfast. Um, I kind of like it as a, oftentimes like a mid-morning or even I'll have that for lunch if I really kind of beef it up with lots of additives, dark chocolate and so on. But anyways, you guys can make it what you like. So cinnamon, really good here. One to two tablespoons. Oh, I know what I was uh, kind of forgetting there. I, I wanted to mention something and I was drawing a blank. So this term metabolic health, I say this a lot. Maybe you guys have also heard this a lot lately, especially with all this virus stuff going on. We hear this all the time, right? What, what does this mean? Why do people say, um, you know, for instance, poor metabolic health greatly increases our risk for complications related to so-and-so. Well, this is what it means, guys. This is what metabolic health means. Metabolic health is just kind of an umbrella term to encompass everything that we are talking about right now. So it encompasses things like our body fat, our insulin sensitivity, our tolerance to blood sugar, how much inflammation we have, and so on. Speaking of which, let's just connect the dots with these things very quickly before we move on to our last point. So this is a, a key, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but really important to emphasize, guys, that any protocol or quote-unquote diet that lowers your body fat percent to a certain level will automatically improve metabolic health, including insulin sensitivity and blood sugar health. So let me just repeat that. Any protocol that decreases your body fat to an optimal level will automatically optimize metabolic health and decrease inflammation. So the point of this is that whether you get to that point via a Twinkie diet or ketogenic diet or a vegan diet, whatever, it's automatically going to improve these markers. That's why we talked about calories in versus calories out in the first episode, because yes, that is still the most important part. But what we're talking about today is long-term sustainability. What can I do to lower cravings, improve mood, reduce my risk for future illness? And so that's why all those quote unquote diets, the Twinkie versus keto versus vegan, whatever, Yes, they'll all, or they all can give you that initial benefit, but it's how do you continue, right? What do you do after that? One of the biggest problems we see is this yo-yo dieting, right? People get these awesome results, but then they bounce right back. Sometimes they bounce back even worse. And so that's why this stuff is important. That's why they're not all created equally. But I do want to highlight that because that is critical, really important to appreciate. And why I said lower body fat to an optimal level is because you can go too low. We know that there is such thing as too low. For instance, when bodybuilders are on stage at a body fat percentage of, I mean, something insane. I mean, I think they're down to like 2% or something like that. We know that that's actually incredibly unhealthy. You can't stay at that level. Um, you, you just can't. It's It just destroys your hormones. You need some level of fat. That's why they will immediately come back up. It's also why those shows are actually really hard on your body. It, it can be, not for everyone, but it can be actually really challenging to recover from that, especially if you do that for long periods of time. So I think that's just another good example of how everything in health is on a, kind of this, this U-shaped, right? There's always, always, always with everything everything that's healthy, there's such thing as too much, too much broccoli, too much exercise, too much water. These are all real things. Now, last but certainly not least, what episode would be complete without talking about omega-3? But it's just because it is 
so damn important for overall health. And it turns out it is critical for body composition as well. Now, the reason it's so important for body composition has to do with how it impacts these cell membranes that we've kind of discussed a little bit. So let's back up quickly to when we talked about insulin signaling, right? We talked about locks and keys and we want that response to be sensitive. Well, turns out that the health of your cell membranes, which is basically this layer of fat that surrounds all of your cells and controls the really passage and, and influx in and out of that cell of different nutrients and signaling molecules and how well cells communicate with one another. The, this is all impacted by the health of these cell membranes. And what is absolutely vital for cell membranes? Well, it's our omega-3. Specifically, it's how much of that we have in relation to other fats such as omega-6. So again, if you haven't listened to some of my earlier episodes, we did an enormously deep dive on omega-6-3. So please go back and listen to that if you want more information, because we do a really deep dive on that one. So cell membranes, you want a adequate amount of omega-3 to make that cell membrane function optimally. What we would call that is fluidity. You want your cell membranes to be fluid. If they're fluid, this means that the binding of that insulin to those receptors and how well you're able to really store energy is optimized and most efficient when we have fluid cell membranes and healthy cell membranes. How do we do that? Well, we have adequate amounts of omega-3 and we have a tight omega-6 to 3 ratio. So close to 3 to 1, 2 to 1, maybe even 1 to 1. Now, the problem is that nowadays, as we've discussed before, so many people because of their intake of processed foods have this really high omega-6 to 3 ratio. So 20 to 1, 30 to 1, even higher. This is not good for your cell membranes. This makes them what's called rigid and also just makes them less efficient and less healthy. And so when we have this, when we have this higher 6 to 3 ratio as opposed to that lower, all of these mechanisms we're talking about are less efficient. They're not going to work as well. We're not going to store energy as efficiently. And so that's why this is also omega-3 so critical for body composition and fat loss. Now there's several other mechanisms that we won't get into in a ton of detail, but we know that omega-3 can also lower high levels of inflammation. That's another thing that's going to benefit body composition as well. And I think we'll save that for the future episode, but in short, your fat tissue can actually release its own inflammation. These are called adipokines, which can actually impair our ability to store energy. So pretty crazy to think that your fat tissue is actually its own organ. The more fat tissue you have, the more problems this creates because that becomes inflamed, releases these inflammatory signals, and this impairs your everything, even your immune system. So actually that's kind of another little nuance thing there, guys, not to digress too much, but if you've been wondering about how things like body fat percentage and metabolic health influence our immune system, well, I just gave you one precise mechanism. If you have more fat, it's going to release inflammation and these adipokines and this inflammation and these signals will actually impair the functioning of your immune system because it gives it more inflammation to cope with as opposed to just being able to focus on one single inflammatory insult such as a viral infection. So I, th I think we've already kind of 
just beat the Omega six to three topic to death enough. So we won't get into that much more. If you guys want to learn more about how to really support that, like I said, go back and listen to that other episode. But as you know, if you've been listening all the way, you want to decrease processed foods, prioritize good sources of beef, egg yolks, wild caught fish, which I know might be difficult to find, uh, whether or not it's wild, some nuts and seeds, but the key is to really limit uh, processed foods as we've discussed. Now I will end with, um, well, let's do this rapid fire, a couple more herbs, and then a quick case study. So here's some other ones. A lot of these are kind of natural herbs. Some of them are other natural uh, plants or plant compounds. Bitter melon, um, you can find this in teas. You can find this in supplement form. So this is bitter melon extract. This is another one that's really beneficial for blood sugar and insulin sensitivity and metabolic health. Fenugreek, this is commonly used for cooking. Could also be found in supplement form or raw form. Wacomy, this is a, a, a type of sea vegetable or kelp actually, which is really popular in Japanese cultures. So they'll actually pair this with meals with a large amount of white rice. So this is another really cool example of how different cultures from around the world have been doing things like this for thousands of years, long before there was any research to support it. And Wacomy, this would be one pretty cool example. Now there's tons more, but we're not going to get into all of them. Berberine, alpha-lipolic acid, or lipolic acid, sorry. So many more examples, and we're going to save those. ATP Labs Adiposlim is an incredible example of a supplement that really combines a lot of these together into one easy to take supplement. So that's a really good option for optimizing blood sugar health. So I wanted to just close with a very quick case study as it relates to omega-3. So I've been working with a client for the past several months. She initially came to me and the primary goal was fat loss. And kind of one of the primary complaints was that despite seemingly doing everything quote unquote right, she just she just couldn't make gains. Now, oftentimes when clients say this, quote unquote, I'm doing everything right, this isn't always the case. But with this individual, actually, it you know, it was pretty near there. I mean, her her diet was like pretty on point. She was strength training and doing some exercise. She was incredibly active. And so I had to do a little bit more digging. Sometimes you do have to do this. Sometimes it's not as easy as total calories or you need to work out more or whatever. And so as I looked through her assessment, one thing I spotted was she had been breastfeeding twins, in fact, for the past uh, several months, I believe it was. So you might be wondering, well, what the hell does this have to do with it? Well, in fact, really interesting. So we know that the highest source of DHA in the human diet is actually breast milk. That means that a woman who is breastfeeding is going to be basically like donating and giving away just enormous amounts of omega-3 and specifically DHA. Now imagine that times two and if it's not being replaced, and so the point of this is that after reading this, I suspected that there was a potential omega-3 deficiency or an imbalance between six and three. So we did get some lab work done. We looked at the omega-6-3 index. Sure enough, pretty interesting to find that indeed this was off. So the omega-6-3 index was, was not where we needed it to be. We needed to boost up that omega-3. So that's what we've been working on the past several months. We've seen some pretty cool results since then. A um, few inches off the waist, down, I, I don't remember how much weight, but improvements to body fat percentage and all of this after, for the most part, I mean, 
really just changing this and focusing on this. We didn't change a, a whole lot else. We have now, but for those first initial months thereafter, this was really the 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 primary focus and this delivered some some really cool benefits. So I think there's probably a lot of people out there who might not be aware of something like this. Maybe you or someone you know could benefit from this. But just cool little case study, I think, that kind of connects all these things together. So that's it for today, guys. Um, I hope you guys got a, a, a lot more useful information out of that between part one, part two. We're really starting to rack these things up and get some really good tools out of this. I, again, that's as I say it every episode, that's the goal. I want you guys to have actionable tools that you can apply and then experience health and performance benefits from. We're going to do uh, one more part of this, part three, and then either probably after that. Yes, I guess it'll be the first one after that. We're finally going to dig into my lab work. So I've recently got my results. I was looking through that the other day and uh, we're going to talk, excuse me, a lot about that. And it's going to be really good timing for it because it's going to make even more sense of everything that we've just talked about. So that's it for now, guys. Thanks again for tuning in. Please continue to send me your questions, feedback. Really helpful to get that. Love getting it. Otherwise, excuse me. Hope you guys can enjoy your lockdown April break, if that's what you're on in Ontario, Canada. Have a good week.